0: Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. As we continue through this wonderful chapter of Matthew's Gospel, we now come to a bit of a pause in the flow of the narrative. For the last few weeks, we've looked at Matthew's account of how people... They respond to jesus 's ministry, they respond to his teaching and they respond to his miracles there's there 's generally two different responses: there are those who come come just down to his feet and they just follow him and they just embrace what God is doing. But then there are those who are so offended at the presence of god 's glory that they reject him and that 's what we 're seeing in chapters eleven and twelve but Matthew is now coming to this section of Matthew 12. He's now giving us a bit of an intermission, but I think it's a very important intermission in the flow of this gospel narrative. Matthew shows that opposition to Jesus grew, and instead of Jesus heading off the, the accusations, instead of heading off the opposition, Matthew shows us here beginning in verse 14 that Jesus retreats to a safe place. And this would be what Jesus would do from time to time in his ministry. He would retreat to a safer place as he continues his ministry. His ministry shows his compassion. So what we're going to see today, we're going to see Jesus' ministry of compassion to the sick, his ministry of compassion to the demon-possessed, his ministry of compassion to this fallen world that we live in. And Jesus... Now, Jesus is now shown here, beginning in verse 14, he's now going to be shown to be God's special servant. And this is a common title for the Messiah that is found in Isaiah's prophecy. And Matthew is giving us a pause here in this chronicle of chapters 11 and 12 of constant rejection of Jesus. Now Matthew's giving us a bit of a pause. One theologian calls verses 14 through 21, an oasis of refreshing beauty in the desert of chapters 11 and 12. And as we read this, I think you'll see where, where where he's coming from. And so this small section of Matthew's gospel is just one of many examples where the witness of Jesus's ministry is connected to the prophecies of the Old Testament. So let let us stand in reverence for the reading of God's word if you will, and let's begin reading in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 12. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. You hear that intermission there of just compassion. Let's pray and ask the Lord to reveal his word. Dear Father God, you have caused us to read the prophecy of your servant Isaiah in the midst of this gospel of Matthew. As we have been reading and seeing for several weeks the constant rejection of your son, it is is a joy to hear from your prophet Isaiah as you speak to us in this text of Matthew 12, reminding us that in a world that rejects your son, Dear Father, you chose him and established him as the servant that would suffer, the servant that would that would just pour out his life for us. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would speak to us boldly in your word. As we live in a fallen world, we suffer, we struggle. Our spirits are in turmoil, in constant battle against the fallen world, the messages that continually continually bombard us are totally against your son. But Lord, you're showing us here that you chose your son, Jesus Christ. You sent him as your servant for a reason. And I pray that you would open our minds, our hearts, our souls. And Lord, I pray you'd speak today. Show us who your son really is. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. This small section of Matthew's gospel is, it shows us that Jesus fulfills every prophecy of the Old Testament that points to him. This is why Matthew is now taking a bit of an intermission here in Matthew 12 to, again, continue to show us who Jesus is. He's been showing us in, in relation to how people respond to him. But now there's a bit of a break here. And and Jesus is shown to fulfill every prophecy, his acts of healing, his acts of compassion. There's strong evidence that he is the servant to come that Isaiah prophesied. This is what Matthew's doing. He's, he's showing us in his gospel, this is not some stranger, some new teaching. He is here fulfilling what Isaiah said would come. And one of the things that Isaiah spoke about often was this servant of God, the servant that God would, would send that Isaiah pro- proclaimed would be the savior of fallen humanity. But even greater than Jesus's miracles, the vision or the, uh, that Isaiah had of a gentle and meek servant in the midst of Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled here in Matthew's account. We think of of the Old Testament prophets of prophesying of of a Messiah, and even the Pharisees and and the people of Jesus' day were looking for a, really, a warrior, a king to come and rescue his people. Yet Isaiah's prophecy also very clearly pointed to the gentle and meek servant. People weren't looking for that. So this is why it's important that Matthew, in the midst of this chapter, is pausing for a minute to say, here is that chosen servant of God, and he's right here. Matthew introduces this section here, uh, verses 14 through 21. He introduces this section about Jesus with the far too common rejection of his ministry. Look here at verse 14. We read this last week, but it, it actually introduces what we're seeing this week. After Jesus was confronted in the grain fields with his disciples in verses 1 through 8, and then in the synagogue, verses 9 through 13, he's confronted again. Jesus is showing who he is. And if you remember last week, Jesus healed the hand of a, a, the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. <gasps> my goodness. And the result here, in verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And so but t- taking a, a launching pad off of this scene of the Pharisees now going out to conspire against Jesus because they were threatened by the Son of God. We see here that the Lord saw both acceptance and rejection everywhere His Father in heaven took Him. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing it once again that Jesus was rejected. And Matthew reveals to us here in verses 14 and 15 that the opposition grew steadily against him. And for the rest of his gospel, he's going to, from time to time, come back to this, uh, this. This opposition was building in Jesus's ministry until it culminates at the end of the gospel, at the end of Jesus's life, where he sacrifices himself for us all. So it's important to note that Jesus, when he faced opposition, Jesus was never chased away. And I think that's important to see here in verses 14 and 15. As the Pharisees are conspiring against Jesus, verse 15, here's the words of Matthew. Jesus, aware of this, he was aware of the opposition, withdrew from there. That's a good line. That's a good word to underline. Jesus was never chased away. He withdrew. What does that show? That shows that Jesus was always in control, even in the opposition against the kingdom of heaven. The enemies of the kingdom do not chase away Jesus. He withdraws as part of his sovereign power. You see that? He voluntarily withdraws from areas of opposition for the purposes of finding safe places for the suffering so that his ministry can continue. I mean, Jesus is wise here. He has ministry to do. His Father in heaven has sent him to accomplish great things. But it's difficult to minister to those in need when the devil is conspiring against him. And he's stirring up the legalists. And they will be a hindrance to Jesus' ministry if he allowed them to be that way. So Jesus being in control withdraws from this, this, this the opposition. He goes to a place where the suffering in the community can still find him and where Jesus's compassion could heal them freely. That's what Jesus is doing. He's not being chased away. The purpose of his withdrawal in verse 15 is so that many will follow him and he healed them all. That would not have occurred had he stayed in the synagogue. There would have been too much opposition to Jesus and too much intimidation to those in need. And Jesus saw that. He withdrew from the opposition. There's no reason to stay in the midst of it. Jesus is in charge. But you see, his Jesus's withdrawal served as a control of the timing of the opposition that would eventually condemn him to death on the cross. Jesus is knowing he knows all that's going to happen in his ministry. He knows that he was sent to be sacrificed, but this was not the time he had too much ministry to do. His what we see here in verse 15, Jesus, aware of the Pharisees, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all. That was Jesus's purpose at this moment. Nothing else was going to stop it. He had compassion for those in need and he was going to do whatever he needed to do to continue to minister to them. The timing of God's purposes for redemption is God's timing, not the Pharisees. Not the devil, not the news media, like Nathan mentioned earlier. It's not of this world. God's timing is God's timing in all things. And Jesus is showing us here that he is in charge. He willingly withdraws to a safe place, not for his own well-being, but for the well-being of those who need him. You see that? They were in need of healing. The timing was determined by Jesus, as he's following the will of his father, the timing is not determined by those who are in opposition to the kingdom of heaven. So, Christian, let me let me pause here and as we look here in verses 14 and 15. I want to encourage us to remember what Jesus is doing here because how many of us allow the fallen world to dictate to us our timing? If God is your God. If the Father in heaven is your Father in heaven, as Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, Jesus. He is our Lord. He, he sacrificed himself for us. Who are we to allow the world to control the timing of what God is doing? That's a good place for an amen, Baptists. But we live in fear of what the world says about us, thinks about us, or opposes what God is doing. And Jesus is saying, "That's okay. You can go and be opposed to what the God in heaven is doing. I'm going to withdraw to a safe place because you're not going to stop what God is doing here. I want to heal those who need me." And He's, in, you know, Jesus is showing His sovereignty. He's showing his, his His authority here. Now, when we look here at verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed Him, and He healed them all. These. These verses here show Jesus's compassion for the broken and the suffering. We saw this over in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. When Jesus told those in need, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." I mean, this passage in Matthew 11, it shows us Jesus' true heart, his compassion for the lost and the fallen and the broken. That's why he's here. His true heart toward the affliction of the suffering and, and the sin burdened. All of us are burdened by sin. None of us are outside of that. And Jesus had compassion here. So as he withdraws from the synagogue where the Pharisees are plotting against him, we see in verse 15 that many followed him. That's important. When, that, when, when Jesus is, is acting, when he is healing, when he is doing what the Father in heaven has called him and sent him to do, those who need him will follow him wherever he goes. They, they left the opposition of the synagogue and they followed Jesus where he went. Many followed him and he healed them all. Underline that. Everyone that came to Jesus as Jesus withdrew, he healed them all. Now, let's, let's not confuse the miracles of healing with the gift of salvation. Salvation. Does it say here that Jesus saved them all? He healed them all. Big difference. Because remember that the healing of the paralytic shows us, well, there's, let me back up. Jesus healed many people who did not believe in Him. He healed many people who did not believe in Him for salvation. Many did believe, but many did not. We see an example of healing and salvation in Matthew chapter 9. You remember that the faith of the paralytic man, the man who was paralyzed, he had friends who carried him to the roof of the house and dropped him through the roof, remember? And what did Jesus say? When he saw this, he looked at the man who was paralyzed, he said, "'Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven.'" That sounds like salvation to me. Yet when we looked at Matthew chapter 9, we don't have the record or evidence that the man asked for it. The actions of faith by him and his friends was enough for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. Yet in other places... We see, we see what happened. I mean, when Jesus forgave this man the fair, who was paralyzed, remember, it riled up the scribes of the law. They got him mad when Jesus proclaimed, your sins are forgiven. But whenever Jesus would heal, it got him mad too. Now, others in the Gospels were healed, but, were, but they never acknowledged Jesus' act of compassion. And they did not believe in him for salvation. One example of many is in Luke chapter 17, when there were 10 lepers who came to Jesus and asked for healing. He healed every one of them. But only one out of the 10 came back to him and thanked him and believed in him. Nine out of 10 were he- that were healed ignored Jesus. Jesus. Many that Jesus, if you remember the feeding of the five thousand, the breaking of the bread, and the and the and the fishes. If you remember after that story, as Jesus goes back across the Sea of Galilee, many followed him after that miracle, but he chastised them because they did not believe in him for salvation. They just wanted another free meal. So just because Jesus performed many miracles, doesn't mean that everyone who received the miracle or participated in the miracle were saved. This, to me, shows his compassion even greater. You see? Look here in verse 16. As he heals them all, verse 16, he ordered them not to make him known. Now, why does he order all of these people that he healed? Remember, in this situation... Everyone who followed them, he healed them all and he ordered them not to tell anyone. Of course, we also know in other evidences of the Gospels, people ignored that. I don't know about you, but if, I, if I'm lame and I'm, I'm sick and I'm about to die or if I'm demon possessed, whatever my problem might be that somebody comes and heals me, I think I'm going to tell a few folks. I don't care what I mean. So is that disobedience to the Lord? Yes, but still giving him praise. Doesn't mean that they were saved, but but this command from Jesus here in verse 16 not to make him known, I, I think it was it was seen, it's clearly an act of compassion. But one reason that Jesus withdrew was so that he could continue his ministry, so that he could continue to heal those in need. And if they proclaimed Jesus' miracles too widely, then the ministry of compassion that he had would be hindered once again. Remember in verse 15, in 15 actually in verse 14. When the Pharisees were plotting against him, that's why Jesus withdrew. He did not want that opposition to build too soon. And so that's one reason. The second reason, I think, that Jesus commanded them not to spread the word was to slow down the inevitable prosecution that the religious opposition would, would bring. And it was to delay the father's timing because the father's timing is his timing. If, if the word spread too quickly, then the opposition would hinder things even more. So here we again, we see Jesus controlling the narrative, controlling the ministry, controlling the compassion for these folks in need. So let's look here at verse 17 here. Now, as Jesus, as Matthew has now kind of set the stage here, there's great healing happening. There's great acts of compassion happening. And now in verse 17, Matthew introduces to us exactly why this is important. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now he's transitioning into going to Isaiah's prophecy. He takes a brief intermission here in the story. He takes the time to show us who Jesus is. Jesus is the compassionate divine servant that Isaiah spoke of. Many of Matthew's readers, I think, if they were reading this or hearing it read, at this point of the gospel, they may have begun to become weary. Can you imagine? You know, like an intermission in a long story or a long play. Maybe this was a brief pause in the narrative to get people to think and to pause and stop a minute. Matthew assures us that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Because the confused, they they were expecting a different Messiah that did not define who Jesus was. We saw the evidence of this in chapters 11 and 12 already. Everyone who opposed Jesus were opposing him because they clearly were blinded to the reality of who he was. They were expecting someone else. And so Matthew here in verses 18 through 21, he he shows us a modified quotation of Isaiah 42. Now, just a little bit of a Bible teaching for those who may not be aware of this. Whenever we see the Old Testament cited in the New Testament, often you will see that the translations are a bit different. And some people falsely use that as evidence to show inconsistencies in the Scriptures. The reason that the New Testament may be worded a little bit differently than the Old Testament primarily has to do with the translations themselves because the Old Testament prophets wrote in Hebrew. The New Testament, by the time of Jesus' day, the Old Testament prophecies were translated into Greek called the Septuagint. So what we're seeing in the New Testament... For us is the English translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew translation. Do you all follow me there? Right? You ever been in a room and by the time and you speak one word to one person, by the time it gets around the room, it's all totally different? It's kinda of what's happening here, but it doesn't it doesn't detract at all from the authority of God's word. It's just the reality of translations. That's all. So when we see here in Matthew 12, verses 18 through 21, if you want to put your finger at Isaiah chapter 42, you can compare the two, and they're very very much the same. Uh, Matthew takes a little bit of liberty here and and changes uh, the last verse just a little bit, but it's still the same. Let's read Matthew 12, verses 18 through 21, as it's also Isaiah 42. We're not going to read that, but if you want to look, you can. Matthew 12, verse 18. This is what Matthew is saying. He's now shifting. Here's who we're talking about. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Why is Matthew putting Isaiah's prophecy in the middle of the chapter here? It's because he's telling us who Jesus is. When we look at Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah emphasizes the theme that that the God of Israel is God alone. He is the true God. That's, That's what Isaiah's prophecy is all about. The God of Israel is God alone. There is no other God. He's the true one. And in chapters 41 through 48 of Isaiah... The focus of God's word to his people is that they are to trust upon him, their God, and to rely upon him, their God, in all things. That's what Isaiah was doing. And he's he's teaching the people they must learn to admire what is admirable. That's what Isaiah is prophesying. Admire who God is and what he does, and admire what is admirable, to admire what is unimaginable. So Isaiah 42 that is cited here in Matthew 12 shows the dependence on this divine servant that Isaiah was prophesying would come to show dependence on God the Father for sending this divine servant. And so Matthew is telling us that Christ, Jesus himself, is called a servant, because God the Father sent him to teach and to heal miraculously, and, and as a sign of the human condition in need of salvation, and the human condition in need of the kingdom of heaven. That's why Jesus was healing. That's why he was teaching so great, so grandiose. He was he, he was showing this human dilemma that we spoke about last week. The human dilemma is that we are in desperate need of salvation because we live in an evil fallen world of our making. The evil of our world, folks, is of our own making. If we complain about the evil in the world, guess who we're complaining to? We should be complaining to ourselves. The evil of the world is the result of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. We continue that curse. We are perpetuating and continuing the evil in our world. If you're upset about it, the gospel is the answer (laughs) because we're the cause of it. Yet the Savior loves us enough, and that's what we're seeing here in this compassionate servant that Jesus is showing us who He is. He is the compassionate servant, this divine servant that God Almighty sends for our redemption. His divine nature, Jesus shows us he submits to his human nature as a servant submits to one greater. And, and this act of humility of Jesus makes him the servant. And as Paul the Apostle reminds us in the book of Philippians chapter 2, he speaks of the mind of Christ, who though he, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or some translations a thing to be exploited. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2, 6 through 8. That's who Jesus is. He, he, He is divine, yet he is also human. And by his will... He humbled his divine nature under the human nature at that point so that he could redeem us. Doesn't cast away his divine nature at all. That's a false teaching as well. Many will take Philippians chapter 2 and they'll even distort, uh, Isaiah 42 and say this divine servant sets aside his divinity. No, he never did. <laughs> That shows his humility even greater. He willingly, set, he just set aside the power that he had for a minute, even though he never, he never let it go, he just didn't use it. That's why in Philippians chapter 2, it says that uh, he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited. In other words, he continued his divine power, he just didn't exploit it. And that's what made him the chosen servant. And so the point of Isaiah's chosen servant, this divine servant of God, is seen in Jesus himself as Jesus is humble, willingly being nothing for the sake of others who are broken. Now, I want us to point, this does not mean that Jesus is weak. This actually, what Matthew is showing us, it shows how Jesus is even stronger. Amen. When we look here at Matthew 12, verse 18, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. What we see here, again, this is from Isaiah 42, verse 1. We see several things here just in verse 18 about who Jesus is. Behold my servant. Number one, he's God's servant. He's the servant alone, beloved and accepted by God. There is no other way to obtain God's favor other than through Christ's intercession, and that is His act of service for us. You see the point? There's no way for us in our fallen condition to be in God's presence or to even obtain God's favor. It's impossible, but through this act of service of Jesus Christ, it is possible. You see that? He's chosen by God. And then in continuing on in verse 18, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. God is pleased with this servant. That's what the prophecy of Isaiah is showing us. That God himself is, he loves the servant. The servant is beloved in his, in his embraces and his soul is well pleased where do we see that? We saw that in Jesus's baptism back in Matthew chapter four. Remember that verses four, uh, chap- Matthew chapter four, verse 17, when Jesus comes up out of the water after the baptism and there is a spirit that descended on him as a dove. And that's what we see in Matthew twelve eighteen. I will put my spirit upon him. And there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, without getting too nerdy on you when it comes to Greek translations and different things, let's think about this too. The Greek Septuagint that translates this Hebrew from Isaiah uses a word for the servant that some will argue could also be translated son. Of course, that's, that's, that's a splitting of fine hairs that Greek and Hebrew nerds and theology people in the room love to think about. It has nothing to do with the the bigger meaning, but it's something here that we—you see the point? So, good sons—maybe some sons in the room need to hear this. Good sons are servants to their father, and Jesus here is being pointed. I mean, this is what Matthew twelve eighteen is pointing out. This is who Jesus is. He is the behold. He's the beloved servant of God, who God favors and pours His Spirit upon Him for the purpose at the end of verse 18, for He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This servant of God, this beloved servant, will be guided by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the truth and bring justice to the nations. The word Gentiles here in verse 18 is the word ethne, that we get for ethnicities, but it's the idea of the nations. All of us will hear the Gospel message of justice through the servant, Jesus Christ. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Now, verse 19, wow, does that not summarize Christ himself? This this divine servant who has divine power equal with God because he is, he will not quarrel, nor cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Has anyone here this week quarreled or cried out loud in anger or frustration? Even if you don't do it loudly, you're, you're, maybe that inner spirit is crying out loud in frustration. He will not quarrel nor cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Why? What, what is, what's this part of Isaiah's prophecy? He will not be heard in the public square. In other words, he's not going to be—he's not going to come out into the public square and bring attention to himself the way that a grand politician or monarch would do. He's going to be subtle. He's going to be gentle. He's going to be—he's going to—he's going to be peaceful. That's what the point is here. He will not be caught up in public squabbles. The divine servant who Jesus Christ is, refused to get caught up in public squabbles. This is why he withdrew from the Pharisees so that he could continue the ministry of his father to those in in need. He's not going to get caught up in the political strife of the church or the synagogue. You see the point here? Christians, how many of us spend more time getting caught up in public squabbles than focusing on the kingdom of heaven? How many of us stir up our minds on what's coming at us through the news media and spend less time in God's word and with God's people? Serving the kingdom, building the kingdom, being peaceable. Christians, we're Evangelical Christians are the most guilty ones of all. We want to get so caught up in public squabbles because that is our ministry. No, not according to the servant of Jesus here. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, the public squabbles are going to be public squabbles. We'll never get out rid of them. They'll always be part of the human condition. Why allow that to control the ministry of God? Why allow that to control the life of the Christian? Because the servant, Jesus Christ, he he didn't get caught up in it. And if we're to imitate Christ... Maybe we should learn from that too. Amen? He's not going to get caught up in public squabbles. He will not, be, he will not demand pomp and circumstance. He does not a, a demand applause for himself like a king does. There will be no parade in the streets to proclaim his arrival. That's what this means in verse 19. His voice will not be heard in the streets like a king would. Because when a king comes through the streets, there's a lot of attention. When any, when any politician from Washington D.C. of any prominence comes to Nashville and flies into the Nashville airport, what happens to the highways in Nashville? Anybody? yeah. Remember when Al Gore, the vice president, came to Nashville? He'd come home to Carthage. You couldn't get anywhere in that. You couldn't get anywhere in middle Tennessee when he landed at the Nashville airport. You see, because people of importance lock up the streets. That wasn't Jesus. He was in the streets with the people. And his ministry was to them. It was not for himself to be glorified. You see that? The opposition of the Pharisees was not going to be his chief concern. It wasn't going to bother him. He had other things to do. Now, when we look here, verse 20, this divine servant is spoken of as a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. In other words, the divine servant will not be harsh to those who are vulnerable. That's what we're looking at here in verse 20. The bruised reed, he will not break. The smoldering wick, he will not quench. In other words, if you are broken, weak, and feeble, you're like a bruised reed. If you want to restore a plant that is bent over and bruised, how do you restore that? Gently. Now, it may come to the point that you have to prune it. That's a different, that's a different sermon altogether. Jesus does prune the vine. Yet here, in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break. He's showing mercy toward the bruised and the bent. Gently restoring them and healing them. Not just physically, but spiritually. C.S. Lewis refers to the serpent or Satan, the the, the deceiver. He often refers to him as the bent one. Now, he's, he's not going to be restored gently. But those of us under the authority and under the manipulation of the devil, we're bent, we're bruised. Jesus is not going to necessarily prune us away just to prune us away. If that's necessary, he will. That's, again, that's a different story. But his ministry of compassion, the bruised reed, he will not break. A smoldering wick, he will not quench. He will trim the wick of a lamp rather than put out the flame. Anybody here ever work? Does anybody here have lamps at home? The old oil lamps that you burn? Sometimes those wicks get so caught, uh, over crusted over with 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 debris and carbon you don't quench the flame you trim it just a little bit so it gets brighter jesus is not going to cast away the light in us that god himself puts in his creation we're made in his image and that light of our creator is not going to be snuffed out it's actually going to be trimmed so they can be burned brighter you see that? The smoldering wick he will not quench. How many of us feel like our Christian life right now is smoldering? I mean, you could just, you know, wet your fingers and sniff it out or blow it out, but that's not what the divine servant's going to do. He's going to trim it so that we're brighter. He's going to add more oil to the flame. Now in verse 21, this is where Matthew's uh, uh, Matthew's modification of of Isaiah 42 is just a little bit different. Matthew 12, verse 21. And in his name, the nations or the Gentiles will hope. Isaiah 42, verse four says this. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. In other words, Jesus is not going to quit. The divine servant is going to continue his ministry as the Father in heaven has has called him to do until the ministry is over, until justice has been established in the earth. And the divine servant will not be discouraged. The divine servant will not grow faint in that calling. And what is the justice we're talking about here? It's not the justice defined by the social justice gospel that we hear so much about now. That's a distortion of justice in biblical terms. Justice is demanded by God of the fallen sinful world. Justice is really justice in all things from the biblical understanding, is that all things are back in balance with God. Sin is atoned for, and it is God Himself who restores the balance. He restores the proper order. That's justice. When the proper order has been reestablished by the Creator God Himself. That's justice. Yet you and I, in our fallen state, the only justice we deserve... It's what? Really? Annihilation. If God is just, really, the justice we deserve is to be wiped off the face of the planet. And that shows even greater the compassion of the divine servant here. You deserve to be destroyed in your sin, yet the compassion of the divine servant is mercy and healing and forgiveness. Wow. Ponder that. That's what we're seeing here. And, 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 and this divine servant in verse 20 and 21, he brings justice to victory and his name to the nations will bring hope. His Justice will be established through the hope of this divine servant, Jesus Christ, and he will not stop. He will not be discouraged until the justice in the earth is fulfilled. And he does it not with a battle cry. He does it with a gentle, compassionate Relationship, healing, and restoration. That's how he does it. Amen? So what do we see here? When we look at verses 18 through 21, Matthew is telling us who Jesus is. He's somebody who's not going to be stopped by the evil opposition that is out there. He's not going to be stopped. He's going to take control. He's going to do what needs to be done and he will compa- he will take care of the broken but he's going to do so as this divine servant that Isaiah continues to talk about through uh chapters 42 all the way through uh, most of the rest of his uh, his prophecy especially when we get to chapters 53 and 56 of Isaiah's prophecy we see even more and more of what this this suffering servant now he goes from a chosen servant to a suffering servant in Isaiah's prophecy as the servant of God who is here to heal the broken. Is Jesus sovereign? Absolutely. Is Jesus just? Absolutely. But what Matthew is showing us here is that in contrast, especially to the harshness of the legalists and the Pharisees, those who who distort God's law into a checkoff list, In contrast to that lack of compassion, we have Jesus Christ, the divine servant, who is compassionate and merciful and sent by God. When we look here at verses 18 through 21, we'll close with this thought too. If Jesus is described this way, then we as his people, we who have been redeemed in the blood of Christ are those who reflect Christ. Do we reflect what we're reading here in Matthew 12, verses 18 through 21, a parallel to Isaiah 42, 1 through 4? Do we reflect the compassion of the suffering servant here? Or do we reflect the legalism of the Pharisees? That's something to ponder. Let me close this in prayer. And as I close in prayer and as Nathan closes us out in one last hymn, it's in the bulletin, right? That last one we're singing is in the bulletin, so you'll need that. I want us to, to really meditate on what we've heard from God's Word here. Who is the Jesus that we serve? Do we serve the Jesus that Matthew's describing here as the chosen servant of God? the one who draws no attention to himself but does what is needed. Is that who we are? Father God Almighty, you've spoken to us in your word today. You've shown us who your son Jesus Christ is, and many of us in this room claim his name. But every day, Lord, we fail in reflecting that name. Dear Father God, as as you have called your son your beloved servant, I pray God that you would see us in the same light, that we would be your beloved, that you that you would pour favor upon us through your son, that we would be in your graces, but that we would be reflecting the beloved servant, your son Jesus Christ as he is described here. I pray, God, that you would forgive us for imagining our Savior in any other way than what you've shown us here. Forgive us, Father, for making Jesus in our image. Your justice is your justice, not our justice is not. And we thank you, Father, for your mercy and for your grace and for the servant, your son, Jesus Christ, who does this for us. Lord, I pray as we close out this time of worship, you would use this time for your purposes. You would, that, dear God, you would speak to each and every one of us, that you would reveal to us where we are obedient, where we are not, where we are compassionate, and where we are not. I pray, God, that we here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church would reflect the compassion of your gentle servant. Use us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.